All right. Welcome back, friends. Uh, we are looking at the subject of gender identity today. Now, uh, remember, all this started as an exercise in understanding this movement called deconstruction. People raised in the Christian tradition find themselves questioning the faith that they were raised in and eventually revising their beliefs to better fit with, you know, modern society. And sometimes they even find themselves leaving the Christian faith altogether. And in many of the stories of deconstruction that you hear, there's actually a common theme. Uh, people were confronted with a modern challenge to one of their traditionally held beliefs. Um, so this, you know, it caused them to rethink that traditional belief, which in turn led them to question other beliefs and so on. It's you know, it's kind of like pulling on a thread that eventually unravels the whole garment, you know. And the modern challenge to traditional beliefs about sex and gender has got to be one of those threads that is getting tugged in a big way right now. So we've been spending time trying to understand why our modern culture seems to be so fixated on these issues. Why, why now? Why is this a big deal now? And why is it such a big deal? And we've been looking at the intellectual roots of this phenomenon. And now we're going to address these issues more directly. And I've decided to deal with gender identity first, um, mostly because I think that it is less divisive in the Christian church right now. I, I'm not saying that it's not a complicated issue or not an important issue. It most certainly is, both of those things. But I do think that there seems to be more agreement around this issue than there is uh, around the issue of sexual orientation. What I'm referring to specifically is the transgender movement. Now, before I get into that and kind of analyze it from a Christian perspective, biblical perspective, I do have to define a bunch of terms because otherwise things are going to get really confusing really quickly. So, so we're going to start with a definition of a, f a few terms that are important to this debate, and hopefully that will clarify things for us before we get right into it. So the first term I want to to clarify is the term biological sex. What in the world is that? Now, that's pretty simple, actually. It refers to the two sexes that make up the human race. Uh, and there are only two. There's the male sex and the female sex. So the human species is what's called sexually dimorphic, meaning that we are biologically differentiated by our corresponding reproductive structures. So when I use the term biological sex, I'm referring to male and female, the two sexes that make up the human species. Uh, and those sexes are determined by our reproductive structures, those things that enable us to reproduce. And you might ask, well, what about intersex? Um, and indeed, in very, case, very rare cases, there are people who are born intersex, and it's a complicated condition in its own right. In fact, actually, there are more than 16 different conditions that are classified as intersex. Um, but sometimes people refer to intersex as a third sex, and you need to know it's not. Um, intersex does not mean neither male nor female. Intersex is a condition 
That includes atypical features in a person's sex, chromosomes, reproductive organs, or anatomical sex. So in other words, um, sometimes being intersex, having intersex conditions can lead to uh, a person being what's called ambiguously sexed. Now, this this is very rare, but my point is simply this. Uh, the issue is not actually whether there is a third sex or whether the so-called sex binary, that is male and female, is questionable. It's not. Uh, even in intersex people, there are only two sexes. So that's scientifically uh, non-controversial. Okay, that's a settled question. The human species is a sexual binary in terms of biology. Okay, so that's the first thing. What about gender or gender identity? What do I mean by that? Um, and let me say, this is actually a more complex issue than you might think. Uh, for example, does gender even exist? And you might think so, just sort of intuitively, but hold on. Here's the definition. Gender is this, the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Now, given that definition, some people have argued that gender is merely a social construct, that there are no actual genders, but that the concept of gender has been imposed upon us by society. Now, uh, I do not want to overcomplicate things, so I'm just going to tell you that most people still believe, and with good reason, uh, that gender does exist. And there certainly are people who describe themselves as non-binary when they're talking about their gender, meaning that they don't identify as either a man or a woman in terms of their gender identity. But even those folks still believe that gender itself exists. And they believe actually the gender binary exists. Uh, when they say they're non-binary, they're not saying that there's some kind of new type of gender. Typically, what they're saying is, is that they don't identify fully with the male gender or fully with the female gender as it's kind of socially prescribed. Um, but they still believe in the concept of gender. Anyway, I digress. Now, okay, uh, let's keep going. Uh, there's two categories that you can break the concept of gender down into. The first is gender roles, and this refers to how males and females are expected to act in any given culture. Every culture has its own ideas about, you know, how men and women are supposed to behave. Uh, that's gender roles. Gender identity is commonly defined as one's sort of internal sense of self as a male or a female or both or neither. And that's the psychological aspect of the issue of gender. So gender roles and gender identity are often connected to each other in the transgender conversation because sometimes people who are transgender argue that they don't feel like their bodily sex represents their internal sense of gender identity. But part of what they mean is that the cultural norms around gender roles don't fit them. So, for example, uh, you know, a girl growing up in Western culture who doesn't enjoy the typical girl things, uh, she may begin to wonder if her gender identity is male, 
because she doesn't fit the cultural gender roles that have been reinforced by the society in which she lives. So that's why it's important to, first of all, remember gender roles and gender identity are different things, but they're often confused with one another or interrelated with one another as a person experiences these, well, what's called gender dysphoria, which is <laughs> uh, the next um, definition I'm going to share with you. So gender dysphoria, what is that? So that's a term that refers to a condition in which someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex as male or female and their inner sense of self, that is their gender identity. So a person who has gender dysphoria is someone whose own sense of gender, that is their own sense of whether they are a man or a woman, does not align with their biological sex. So there's disharmony between their biology and their psychology. That's a simple way of kind of understanding that. That's gender dysphoria. And now, one more. Uh, let me give you one more term before we get right into this. Uh, and that's the term transgender itself. What does it mean to be trans or transgender? Uh, this, again, is tougher to define than first meets the eye. Uh, I didn't realize this, but uh, uh, I'm drawing on a great book uh, by a guy named Preston Sprinkle called Embodied. And uh, listen to what he says in the book about uh, the definition of transgender. He says, if your girlfriend comes out and tells you that they're trans, this could mean a variety of things. Maybe they believe they were born in the wrong body, or maybe they simply don't resonate with femininity and want to cut their hair short and color it blue. Transgender is an umbrella term for the various ways some people experience the incongruence between their biological sex and their gender. As an umbrella term, transgender can describe many different experiences, identities, and ontological assumptions. Now, this is not a, this is a podcast, okay? This is not a uh, university level or master's level course on gender studies. Uh, so I'm going to simplify as much as I can. I'm, going to I'm not going to describe all the different types of transgender conditions, but for our purposes, I'm going to use the term transgender the way it's commonly understood to describe someone whose self-identified gender identity is not aligned with their biological sex. So a trans person is someone who may have one biological sex, but identifies themselves as the other biological sex. They may have the reproductive structure of one sex, say female, uh, but they identify themselves inwardly, that is, their inner sense of who they are, is not female, but male, or vice versa, okay? Now, this might sound very similar to gender dysphoria, but the transgender community itself actually makes this distinction between being transgender and having, gen, tran, or having gender dysphoria. Transequality.org, which is a, a pretty well-known website for uh, uh, the trans community, it explains it this way, quote, not all transgender people have gender dysphoria. On its own, being transgender is not considered a medical condition the way that gender dysphoria is. 
Many transgender people do not experience serious anxiety or stress associated with the difference between their gender identity and their gender of birth, and so may not have gender dysphoria, end quote. So, as you can see, things are more complicated than we might first think, at least uh, among the transgender community itself. Um, but we have to try to make sense of this and do it from a Christian perspective. How are we supposed to analyze this phenomenon biblically? Uh, you know, some people might say that the Bible, you know, it actually has little or nothing to say about this subject because it's such a modern phenomenon. The Bible was written in a very different, very ancient cultural context. But in fact, I beg to differ. I think actually uh, Scripture has a lot to say on this subject. And so I'm going to walk us through that. I'm going to use some things from Preston Sprinkle and from other places um, to unpack what the Bible teaches about gender identity. And hopefully we'll have a little more clarity by the time we're done. So the first thing we ought to remember is that according to the Bible, um, what do we have to remember? Oh, yeah. Uh, our biological sex is actually, and our bodies themselves are essential to our image-bearing status. So Genesis 1 gives us the most fundamental truth about our human identity. We are made in God's image. So Genesis 1 verse 21, 27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a couple remarkable and importantly notable things about this. First of all, the, the, word, the Hebrew word for image here is actually the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament um, and even in the ancient Near East and other places, for idol. And idols back then uh, were most often understood to be visible representations of an invisible deity. Okay? So a statue of Baal was meant to represent the god Baal that you couldn't see with your eyes. And here, Genesis is saying that human beings as image bearers, they serve as the visible representatives of the invisible God. Now, there's been a lot written about what exactly image bearing is, like what is it about us that points to God or reflects God. But, but one thing is clear, our bodies are an integral part of that because we are embodied image bearers. We are idols, if I can put it that way. Um, of the God that we are meant to represent. So the term image actually highlights human physicality as a big part of our being made in God's image. But it's not just our physicality itself, it's actually our sexed physicality, because the verse also says, male and female, he created them. So human beings bear God's image as male and female bodies. That's not all we are, but that's certainly a big part of what we are. Now, remember, we're not talking about your inner gender identity right now. We're not even talking about gender roles necessarily, like what, what is masculine, what is feminine, what is meant to be masculine, what is meant to be feminine. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about biological sex at the most basic level. And the very next verse in Genesis makes 
this explicitly clear because in verse 28, it says to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So male and female as embodied bearers of the image of God, okay, they are created as a complementary pair that is capable of reproduction. And Genesis 28, because it points to reproduction uh, as a part of our mandate as human beings, uh, kind of give evidence that the focus here is on biological sex. And this is super important, actually, massively important. The, the sexual binary of male and female is essential to understanding what it means to be human. That's what Genesis 1 is showing us. Um, and this is shared, this, this perspective is not just me talking or, you know, people from my conservative reformed theological tradition talking. This is, this is understood by many theologians, many biblical scholars from all kinds of, you know, traditions and backgrounds. One very, very liberal scholar, in fact, puts it this way, quote, Sex difference must consequently be regarded as an essential datum in any attempt to define the human being and the nature of humankind. Now that's super important because you will find sometimes in some Christian circles when they say, well, you know, everybody's created in the image of God, they will, they will purposely omit the part about being male and female. They'll say everybody is created in the image of God, but to correctly describe how we're created in the image of God, we should say everybody is created in the image of God as male or female. That's how we should say it. You know, there, there's a movement today to attempt to argue that this binary is like I said earlier, merely a social construct or that human biological sex is not a part of being made in God's image. But Genesis 1 verse 27 acts, argues that it is. It's, it's integral. It's inextricably linked. The sex binary is part of our imageness. It's part of what it means to be human. And in fact, the Bible takes great pains to say that God made us male and female. The question is, why? Why? And I already said that, you know, verse 28 explains why. Um, fruitfulness, right? The male-female binary is capable of producing offspring, that is, children. Um, when you move to Genesis chapter 2, which is kind of like a, a, a zooming in on the creation of, of man and woman as Adam and Eve, we get more detail about the purpose of this sex binary. When God creates Adam out of his, or so when God creates Eve out of Adam's side, we, we usually like to use the word rib, or we were taught the word rib. Some older translations use that word, but actually the word is just side. So Eve is created out of Adam's side, and then Eve is presented to Adam for the first time. It says in Genesis 2 verse 24, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, that phrasing, one flesh, it is about more than sexual union, for sure. But it's definitely not about less than that. 
Adam and Eve, as male and female, they form this complementary pair who become one flesh. And so the sex act, sexual intercourse, it's not just a union, it's actually a reunion. Uh, sex is a picture of this reunion between husband and wife as one flesh. Like, ask yourself this question. Why is it that the sex act is what pictures one fleshness? Like, why not holding hands? Or why not a wet willy? I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a joining of flesh, right? Well, the reason is, is because the sex act alone creates new life. A wet willy does not create new life. Holding hands, despite what maybe you're told <laughs> when, you're, when you're young and very uh, sort of naive and, and impressionable, Holding hands doesn't create new life either. There's an organic life that comes from this organic union of male and female as a complementary pair. And this is a bigger deal probably than we think because you know what? You can read the Bible through this lens. You know, the Bible begins and ends with the complementarity of male and female. Think about the creation story, right? At creation, everything has its divinely inspired pair. So the sun has the moon, and the morning has the evening, and the sea has the dry land, and heaven has earth, and male has female. These are divinely designed, yet distinct and differentiated pairs. That's the beginning of the story. Now, how does the Bible end? Well, it's no accident that when you go to Revelation chapter 19, you see a wedding supper, a wedding supper of the Lamb, right? Which is a spiritual picture uh, with uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is Jesus, and the church, right? It is a spiritual picture of the reality that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, where heaven is coming down to earth, and so these differentiated pairs, which are separated at creation, are now coming together in union, which is, which is a reunion. That's the goal of the whole Bible, is this cosmic marriage. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every one of us has to be married, okay? And it doesn't mean that um, human marriage is the ultimate goal of human living. But this pair of heaven and earth coming together is meant to be foreshadowed and pictured by human marriage. That's what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so male and femaleness, okay, they are of essential importance in the Bible. That distinction is important to the entire storyline of the Bible. God didn't make us haphazardly or randomly he made us in this sexual binary, and the whole story of redemptive history is woven together with this binary in mind. Now, you might think, look, I'm, t okay, you might think I'm talking a lot about sex, but I was supposed to be talking about gender, <laughs> okay, but here's the thing, okay, 
there's an in, there is an equivalence between the biology of sex difference and the corresponding identities of male and female in the body or sorry in the bible or let me put it another way there is an organic unity between biological sex and gender identity in the bible they're not ex now let me explain this is why Leviticus says that, that homosexuality, a man lying with a man as with a woman, is wrong because it is a confusion of gender identity. This is why the Apostle Paul describes homosexual relationships as deviating from natural relations, from natural function. In each instance, uh, those arguments only work if there is an assumed equivalence between the biology of sexual difference, that is male and female, and what the Bible calls men and women. This is precisely what Jesus upholds as normative in Matthew 19. You maybe remember that passage where he's asked about divorce by the Pharisees and whether it's permissible because it was permissible under the law of Moses and they want to know what Jesus has to say. And in his answer, Jesus quotes both Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 to reiterate the creation account's perspective on our sexed embodiment. He says, At the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus seems to believe that the created order remains normative thousands of years after creation, and that the created order is actually a guide for the moral order, because the Pharisees were asking a moral question, and Jesus goes back to creation to give us the norm, the guide for how we should look at this moral issue. So when you want to answer the question, how should things be, you should look back at creation for guidance. How we feel about our gender identity does not describe how we ought to live out God's design for gender identity. That's what Jesus is showing us in this passage. Okay, now, uh, let's see. If the gender binary is God's idea, and we're supposed to embrace our biological slash creational difference as men and women, then you would think that confusion of these realities would be displeasing to God, right? And you'd think we'd find evidence of that. Because, well, here's the rub, right? Like, the question is, what's the big deal? Why would God really care? <laughs> I mean, doesn't he want me to act according to my true self? But throughout the Bible, we see that over and over again, God does not want men to behave as women sexually, or in terms of their gender expression, frankly, or vice versa. So he prohibits cross-sex behavior. For example, uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 uh, prohibits cross-dressing. It says there, quote, a woman must wear men's clothing. No, sorry. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. No, that's hard language, right? But And you might say, well, okay, that's the Old Testament. Is that still applicable? But 
Paul actually raises the same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, verses 14 and 15, they address the same issue. It's a key passage. I'm not going to read the passage. You can look it up. It is a tough passage. I admit that, okay? But all interpreters agree at least on this. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul maintains sex differences. In fact, he even emphasizes them as something that should be upheld and celebrated. So they agree that Paul maintains and celebrates and upholds sex differences in these passages, and they agree that he actually appeals to creation. He appeals to Genesis 1 and 2 to do so. So the simplest way to understand this passage is is to see that, that Paul assumes that culture gives us some of our cues for masculinity and femininity, right? Um, in that passage, he's talking about hair length and, you know, covering your head and uncovering your head and this kind of stuff. So most scholars say, well, that was, that was sort of the cultural component to it. Today, we might look at wearing dresses versus wearing pants or whether you wear makeup or not. These are, are cultural things that differentiate masculinity and femininity. Now, in our culture, obviously, people are trying to tear down these so-called socially constructed uh, gender stereotypes, and some of them should be struck down, but some of them exist because they are connected to our biology, right? Uh, but the point is, is that culture gives us some of our cues about masculinity and femininity. The bigger thing is that in that pa passage, Paul says, um, he starts to ask the question, he says, does not the very nature of things, and then he continues on, he uses an argument not simply from cultural accommodation, but from nature, the way things are, the way things God has designed them to be. See, the overriding principle Paul is making here is that when men look like women, or women look like men or behave like men. And I know that that's a bit of a loaded term. Like, what does it mean to behave like a man? What does it mean to behave like a woman? There are, there are lots of things that we impose upon boys and girls and men and women that, that frankly are simply our own cultural prejudices being, you know, forced on people. And that's wrong. You know, like girls dance and boys play sports or girls are into art and boys are into, I don't know, building cars or something like that. But Paul's overriding principle is that when men look like women or women look like men, um, that, he says, is disgraceful. The question is why? And the answer is because it says to God, you made a mistake. It's not what I'm feeling that might be mistaken. Rather, it's, it's to say that God, in his design, made a mistake. And that's where Paul says is the problem lies. When we take uh, our gender identity and we refuse to align it with our biological sex and we say that our gender identity, which is our inner sense of whether we are male or female, masculine or feminine, not just masculine or feminine, but male or female, when we make that predominant over our biology, 
what we are essentially saying is is that God's design was a mistake and my sense of being who I am it ought to override God's design and you know when Paul speaks negatively about same-sex intercourse in Romans chapter 1 he does the same thing he says now he's talking about same-sex intercourse but he says that they exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones his logic is rooted in God's creational intent for males and females over and over the Bible first of all reinforces the sex binary between male and female it's there and it's meant to be there because it's the way God created things to be so it it also emphasized the importance of sex distinction between masculinity and femininity and it, and it rejects blurring those distinctions or transgressing those distinctions as sinful so essentially what the Bible says is that we do not have an inalienable right to do what we want with our physical bodies rather we're expected to align ourselves with the natural order um, what's interesting is is you know like the environmental movement I know there are people who you know poo-poo the environmental movement because sometimes it can get extreme and I, I get that that's that's certainly possible but what the environmental movement has shown us is that we cannot do whatever we want with the environment um, there is a natural order and we if we try to kick against that natural order we run into big trouble what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to work with the natural order that's there and so what scripture is calling us to do is in the same way we're supposed to respect our biological nature work with our the natural order for how we were created to be and when we do that um, we we find ourselves uh, actually experiencing the flourishing that we were designed to know you know we respect nature but we should also respect our nature that's what this passage is showing us okay now who that was a lot I know and uh, this episode is getting pretty long as it is I always say I'm gonna keep them under 30 minutes and I keep failing to do so I apologize for that look what we need to do now if we have this framework in mind is we need to think about what a Christian response to the transgender movement should be right I've I've, I've hinted at it just a, a moment ago but certainly we can't just sit there and say it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong we should be able to say that of course but that shouldn't be all we say uh, and it shouldn't be all we do so what we're going to do next time is we're going to to take this framework and actually apply it to um, what we're seeing around us which is a, a major rise in Gender, dys, uh, gender dysphoric children and teens, especially among young girls, and how on earth are we supposed to address that phenomenon knowing what we know about what the Bible teaches with respect to how we ought to, to frankly love our bodies, as Nancy Piercy would say. Okay, friends, that is it for the Clear Thinking podcast for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.